Wow, Wharton, would you like to earn your MBA from this renowned elite MBA program? Pull up a chair. Our guest today is Blair Mannix, Wharton's Director of Admissions. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 440th episode of Mission Straight Talk. Thanks for tuning in. Are you ready to apply to your dream business schools? Are you competitive at your target programs? Acceptance MBA Admissions Calculator can give you a quick reality check. Just go to accepted.com slash MBA quiz, complete the quiz, and you'll not only get an assessment, but tips on how to improve your qualifications and your chances of acceptance. Plus, it's all free. Again, use the calculator at accepted.com slash MBA quiz to obtain your free assessment. It gives me great pleasure to have back on Admission Straight Talk, Blair Mannix, Director of Admissions at Wharton. Blair first came to Penn as a graduate student where she earned her master's in higher education management in 2010. She joined Penn's undergraduate admissions staff in 2008. She's been at Wharton since 2012 and became director of admissions in 2017. She was last on admissions straight talk just under two years ago. And what a two years it's been. Let's catch up on life and admissions at Wharton. Blair, welcome back to admissions straight talk. Hey, Linda, thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Now, I'd like to start with some just general questions about Wharton's MBA, and then get more specific and focused on admissions, okay? Mm-hmm. Can you just start by providing a basic overview of the Wharton MBA program for listeners who may not be that familiar with it, focusing on its more distinctive elements? I'm sure they're familiar with its reputation, but that's not what I'm talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like how difficult to put Wharton into five to seven sentences, but I will try. So Wharton was the first business school in the United States, established in 1881. Uh, Wharton's first MBA class was in 1921. So this year um, is actually the 100th class that Dean Erica James welcomed in August, which was really, really exciting. Um, It is a perfect bookend in terms of 100 years of classes for me that this year's class is more than 50% women, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but it just feels like this beautiful bow, 100 years, 50% women, which is great. Um, The Wharton education, you know, what I think makes it distinct is that it's very hands-on, it's very practical, it's very tactile. You know, you're never going to look at a problem from 30 feet away. You're going to get right into the guts of it and try to figure it out. And that's what we teach because that's what we believe that businesses need. We're known for innovation across many disciplines. We are certainly known for finance, and we're really proud of that reputation, 100 years of the best finance education you can get. Um, But we are many other things, and I think that's important for people to understand. Uh, Two distinguishing um, centers that I really wanna talk about are the last three years, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance, um, which is, you know, financial technology and all of that. The hub for all of that lives at that's Yep, that's something we're really proud of. And the Harris Center for Alternative Investments, which is BC Hedge Funds, again, another center and a hub for all of those research projects, corporations, communities, students, and businesses are all at Wharton, which is really exciting. So I would love for your listeners to check out the Stevens Center at Wharton or the Harris Center at Wharton, which is great. And then the last thing I'll say that I think is a differentiator we're a pretty large program, 864 students, but we really 
work hard to make sure that it is a robust social experience. Business is a team sport. It's not a solo sport. You have to meet and interact with your classmates. Um, and we stop at nothing to make sure that that happens. So I would say first in its class started in 1881, finance, tactile, practical, and then a robust social life as well. That's great. Thank you. Can I add something? Please. <laughs> okay. One of the things that I've been struck with whenever I've interacted with the Wharton admission staff, like at AGAC conferences, is the amount of time and attention devoted to supporting the students. There are so many options at Wharton, and I think Wharton is very intentional and very dedicated to helping each student find their path through all those options and opportunities. So that's that's my whole thing. Okay. I'll just say two two words on that. We have a group called the Advising Support Network. Everything at Wharton is an acronym. We call it the ASN. Basically, your personal board of directors, advisors across academics, career management, student life, and leadership that'll help guide you through two years. You'll never be more supported than you are during the Wharton MBA. That's something that struck me as, you know, I obviously talked to a lot of different admissions directors, but that was something that really struck me about Wharton. Thanks, Now, let's, let's go on. Again, I said it's been a tumultuous two years. We were commenting that it's, this seems like it's a lot more than two years since we last talked. That's, of course, because of mostly because of COVID. What COVID adaptations has Wharton made that you think are going to stick, has, has actually been a silver lining? Yeah, I love this question because the way I think of this is everything has changed. Everything has changed in your personal life, your professional life, in school life. Everything has changed. Um, for all of us. And so there's a couple of things and actually probably more than a few, probably more than I'll mention things that are going to stay post COVID. I um, kind of laugh. Uh, I don't know if there's any, if there's any parents listening, a lot of the schools have gone to um, kind of like outside the building drop-offs. And I have a feeling that teachers like that. They're like, I don't want these parents coming in. So I'm sure that <laughs> will stay. Right. So there's just so many things personally and professionally that'll stay. And for us, uh, you know, a couple of the things I like to mention are virtual advising appointments, that board of directors that I mentioned, your advisors across five different divisional offices, um, they're going to continue advising in person if you would like, or online virtually via Zoom if you would like that, right? Like sometimes it's just more efficient for anybody's schedule, particularly the students. If you're recruiting in New York and you want to take a Friday advising appointment, you can do that, right? So why would we get rid of these beautiful advances? And so hybrid advising across all Departments will stay. Hybrid recruiting in the career management office, corporations, uh, companies, staff coming to campus. There were so many wins, Linda, in this, in the virtual recruiting space that we will now dovetail into a hybrid recruiting space. You know, really big Wharton alums that wouldn't necessarily fly from LA or San Francisco to come to a recruiting event on campus can now pop in virtually. So I, I think the wins in that space will will stay as well because they're just they're just so clear. And then the last thing is admissions recruiting uh, will at, the, at least for the foreseeable future remain hybrid. I've done a ton of focus groups with our prospective students on whether or not they enjoyed meeting us virtually or they enjoyed meeting us in person. And I've really gotten a, a, a plethora of answers. A lot of people say, no, I really liked seeing you guys uh, in New York. I really liked you guys coming to Houston. And some were like, listen, I can get the information online at 7.30 at night and not have to leave my house. I loved it. So for at least the Wharton MBA admission staff, hybrid admissions recruiting is here to stay. That makes sense. That, that completely makes sense. Now, Wharton in the past offered many, many global study opportunities that 
has been affected. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> how, how are you, uh, you know, COVID probably put a crimp on the, on the global gallivanting that, that the MBA students enjoy, not to mention the admission staff, but I don't know if you guys enjoyed it quite as much. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what's, what's going to come in place? How do you see it coming back? If it's going to mm-hmm. come back, is it going to be hybrid? I mean, what's, what do you see happening? What a funny statement, a global gallivanting. That is like the most perfect way to describe <laughs> it. I feel like that's just that's picture perfect window. So yes, it's, global it's gallivanting. Not, it's not uh, registered or trademarked. Or no TM. Like that. So okay, you have right. you're at, you have permission. <laughs> Stolen. Um, yeah, a lot of global gallivanting at Wharton. It's part of the culture, part of the program. Something that we're proud to give our students, just because you know, business is global. The world is global. Wharton has been global for decades. And, and that's one of the reasons folks come uh, to Philadelphia to be in the, in the program. Um, yeah. Pause on global gallivanting for the last 18 months for sure. Um, but Wharton doesn't like to take things lying down. So we actually welcomed the first cohort of students, our Lauder Institute a cohort, which is a joint degree master's in international studies and an MBA in two years. And they're actually in Alaska right now. They're in Alaska, about 70 students studying indigenous cultures, um, you know, relative to the, you know, the American history context. And I actually just got an email from them yesterday that they have uh, been not fighting bears, but they've had a lot of bear sightings. So, yep, they're not climbing mountains in Kathmandu, but they are uh, doing similar things in Alaska because we were not going to take those experiences lying down. They're also going to Iceland in October as part of that program. And so I think these are the two kind of early breadcrumbs you can see of Wharton trying to ramp up our global gallivanting because the larger programs like our global modular courses will kick back up in January. So we're really excited about that. And will the global, is the hope that the global modular courses will actually include travel as opposed to more yeah. So purple. I think I've learned a lesson during the pandemic to not try to predict anything. Certainly okay. in summer of 2020, I did that and I uh, wasn't always correct. Um, <laughs> but yeah, right. The world is opening back up. People are vaccinated. Uh, vaccinations are required at the University of Pennsylvania. So my hope is the plans for that can go full steam ahead. But who knows what will happen? You right. can get hit by right. a meteorite. Right? Who knows? <laughs> I think uh, I, heard, I heard a quote. It was attributed to Eisenhower. It was uh, plans are worthless. Planning is everything. Love it. Love it. <laughs> um, what's a, now you mentioned that Wharton is known as finance school, but it's not only a finance school. What are some myths that you'd like to dispel about Wharton or what is something that you'd like people to know about Wharton that they maybe don't know? Yeah, Typically I love this. No, I should say. Yeah. I love this question. And, and you mentioned meeting some of my admissions colleagues on the road you know, we are such a small subset of the Wharton community, but often we are some of the first people people meet. And so we hope desperately that we can get across this notion. The first myth I'd like to dis- displace is that Wharton's a cutthroat place. We hear so often, you know, I thought Wharton was cutthroat and competitive. And then I meet you guys and it's not like that at all. And I'm like, well, we've done one portion of our job, but really my job is to convince people that we're not cutthroat before you meet us. Right. So that's kind of where I find, I always feel like the people saying that is actually a detriment. I feel like I needed to do a better job on the forefront. So people think that about Wharton, but it's actually a massively collaborative place. Uh, group um, interview prep is like one of the most common things you'll see on campus. They're not all competing for the same jobs. They're actually helping each other. And we have grade non-disclosure for 40 years. The students vote um, and say that they uh, all agree not to share their GPAs with potential employers. So that cuts down on kind of competition 
in the classroom, which is something that's a bedrock to our culture. You mentioned finance, right? We're really proud of our finance background, and clearly we're doubling down on that as it relates to some of our new uh, centers and innovation and financial technology. But really, you know, if you are not a finance person, I really want people to understand that you have a home at Wharton. The, the depth and breadth of expertise we have across disciplines, people don't always understand. And the last thing I'd love to dispel, which is kind of cultural and kind of admissions, which I think will kick us into admissions, is I get asked a lot, Linda, about I'm a traditional student. I'm a non-traditional student. And I just kind of want to dispel the idea that there is a traditional and a non-traditional student right now in 2021. I have never used that lexicon in almost 10 years of sitting on the Wharton AdCom. What is traditional, right? We've seen the diversification of our applicant pool you know, I can only speak for 10 years. And so anybody listening to this, I would love for them not to say, oh, I have this background, I'm non-traditional, or I have this background, I'm traditional, because it really just doesn't operate like that anymore. Um, we have talent, and we want that talent to be at Wharton. Where, whether or not your background is deemed in historical context of non-traditional or traditional, that's not something we really talk about. But I just like to say that out loud sometimes. I'm laughing because I... I, it was I at one time was volunteering regularly when Forte would have in se- sessions in LA and they would always have these these round tables and one time I was asked to take the non the non-traditional applicant round table and I loved it and every time I after that I would take it and I would always say you know almost always it was rarely a person I found them to be really non-traditional and I would say, you know, it was it was a joke. I just loved it because I was, ah, you're not non-traditional. You're not non-traditional. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially, you know, these days, the applicant pool is so diverse and so broad that just, I don't know who would who would even fall into that category. So I like to talk about Well, the other thing about it was to the extent there is some validity to it, the fact that you're non-traditional and talented adds to your appeal because then you're bringing something special to the to the class. So they were talking and looking at it as a, as a disadvantage. And I was saying, no, it's a strength. You, you cannot imagine how many times I've spoken to applicants concerned about X factor in their application. I'm like, that's not a weakness. That's a strength. Yep. Some of them are today at Wharton, by the way. Let's, let's, as you said, let's turn to the application. And let's turn specifically to testing, okay? Now, Wharton at the moment requires either the GMAT or the GRE. You're not, unless something's changed since I looked on your website, you're not accepting the executive assessment. Correct. Are there there any plans to accept a wider variety of tests? Any plans to lessen reliance on these two tests, either by going test optional, offering waivers, or just, again, opening the, the door to other tests? Such a good question, and thank you for asking it. So no plans to diversify from the GMAT and GRE, and I will get into that. No plans to go test optional, no plans for waivers. We're really excited to have added the GRE onto our docket. Obviously, this was 10 years ago, but we've seen a lot of admissions businesses do that, right? Like law school admissions now accepts the GRE, and so it really kind of opens the aperture of talent that feel like they could find a home at one of these programs. And that's something we're excited about. But the reason we're not looking to diversify the testing or go test optional or go test waiver is we are Wharton. We do a ton of data dives on the back, right? Wharton's such a data-driven place. So we wouldn't just kind of like have an admissions component and a criteria and not study it and study it and study it and study it. And so admissions has a full-time data scientist. She is the smartest person I've ever known. She and I share an office. Our walls come apart and we talk before COVID literally like 
person to person through the walls <laughs> every day. And um, she has done more than one study that says of how predictive testing is to your success in the program. Um, and so that's why we're not going to go optional or go waiver. Uh, but I will say in that testing is predictive of your success in the program, but a wide variety of scores are predictive for different pieces of success in the program. And so when people always say, you know, I, you know, Wharton's GMAT mean is X, I have to hit that to get in. Like if anything, we pay attention to the GMAT and the GRE way less than any human being outside my walls would ever believe me. And nobody will ever believe me, but I swear we pay attention to way less than people think, but it has been proven as significant. And that's why we're going to keep it as part of the application. What other elements are you finding to be very significant in terms of being predictive of success? Well, there's a white paper on my desk right now that is waiting to be published. So maybe I shouldn't give them now, but I will say two things, neither of which will be surprising, both quantitative, you know, so testing, transcripts, things like that, and a lot of qualitative things that Wharton and my staff particularly have spent the last seven years trying to quantify the unquantifiable. So there's a lot of soft skills that we've been trying to quantify and successfully, like uh, a lot of the stuff in your extracurricular lists, how do you quantify that? Uh, a lot of your behaviors in our team-based discussion, which we'll talk about, how do you quantify that? So we've quantified kind of the more soft skills and those have been predictive of success. And I'm not trying to leave you hanging, but it is sitting on a white paper and I think it needs to be approved. So what it is, I will tell you. <laughs> Send me a copy. I'd be very curious. I'd love to Absolutely. see it. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. What happens to applications after the applicant hits submit? Oh, I love this question. So my bones and my bread and butter are in the fair and accurate evaluation of candidates. I could do that all day, every day, and did for years until I was fortunate enough to be put into this role kind of as my core job. So after you press submit, one question that always kind of comes into this, if, if I apply in July or if I apply uh, one day before the deadline, does it matter? Nope, does not matter. We will not read anything until every application is in, the deadline is closed and then we start reading them the next day. Each application gets two blind reads. And when I say blind, it means I read the application, somebody else on my staff reads the application without having any knowledge of each other's commentary on the talent coming across in the file. And that's really important because bias in evaluation, bias in hiring is rampant and problematic. And you can do, and we do a lot to get the bias down. You can never get rid of it. Blind reads is one way to do that. And so two, uh, two readers read the application in a blind context. Then we actually, and people are surprised by this, Linda, we sit in committee for a week to 10 days to determine the interview class. Uh, I tell uh, our staff all the time, if we don't get it right right now in terms of talent selection, we will not have the opportunity to get it right later. So that is actually one of the biggest weeks of our year, uh, those three weeks, round one, round two. We uh, announced the interview class all in one day. It's very important to me to get that stress level down. We're not doing drips of interview releases. You find out if you were interviewed on one day and it's within one hour if I've told you uh, when we're going to release it on the website or I feel like I have failed. Like if I say midday on Wednesday and it gets out at like two, I'm like, that was a failure. But the day, the day it comes out, the hour I said it would come out. Then we run through our team-based discussion interview and I'm sure we'll talk about that. When it comes back from team-based discussion, again, trying to quantify the unquantifiable, certain behaviors that have been indicative of success in classroom and future careers are what we're looking for. We can talk about that. An additional read is done by a different 
staff member, third touch point on the file, third read in order to decrease bias. And then final and the, the third would, would also include the, the notes from the TVD, right? Correct. And yeah. So four. Yeah. Yep. Three, three readers and one interview reviewer. We do do blind interviews, meaning the person walking into the interview doesn't have your resume and hasn't studied up on you. There are different academic opinions about that, but the way Wharton believes, and I believe this because I've studied it a lot, is um, you can be really biased for or against somebody if you have a piece of documentation walking into the room. So we feel very strongly about getting a different viewpoint. Okay. All right. That's great. Thank you. That was a really fantastic answer. Now, let's, again, go a little bit more deeply into the application. Wharton has two required questions and one optional. And I'm going to ask more about the optional and the required ones. I think the required ones are actually fairly straightforward. The optional asks, please use the space to share any additional information about yourself that cannot be found elsewhere in your application and that you would like to share with the admissions committee. It has 500-word limit. It gives a lot of latitude. So my question is, is it truly optional? And do most admitted students write one? Such a good question. The answer is it's truly optional. To answer your second question, do most admitted students write them? This is in service to probably the answer of the first question. I don't know. I don't know if most admitted students write them. And that probably can prove to people that the first answer is a real answer. It's not, it's not required. I really don't know. The reason we have it worded like that, Linda, is because... I love the wording, by the way. Yeah, I well, yeah, I appreciate that. Um, the reason we have it worded like that is because there's just something in the admissions business that's lacking in terms of trying to get to know applicants. And essays like kind of get there, but they don't fully get there. And unless there's a whole overhaul on how we do admissions, you know, I'm really looking to give somebody a chance to just be a human being and tell us their story. So that's why we have it uh, written like that. The advice I give it is twofold. If you want to talk about why you had a C in statistics your sophomore year, write me a bullet. You know, I had a C in statistics. I got mono. I'm really bad at statistics. I wanted to let you know that, right? Or like something happened with my family and I didn't do really well junior year. That's just a bullet point. That's great. Please put that. But the other piece of advice I give is finish your application, walk away from it for a couple of days. If you feel like there's a story that you need to tell somebody reading it to have you, to have that person understand who you are and how you've operated through your life and career, write that story. Like, you know, a lot of times there's a project, a client, a deal that really kicked you into wanting to come to business school. Sometimes there's not a place for that. And detailing that whole story, you know, even if it's just 150 words can be really, really helpful, right? So there's a piece to your story that can be just unpacked in a couple of words, write that there, also leave it blank. Also give me bullet points. Yeah, it seems to me that the professional story is pretty much covered in the required essays, but somebody might have a non-professional story, you know, obstacles overcome, a triumph, uh, whatever, that that is part of their story. It doesn't necessarily relate directly to their profession. Are you interested in that too? Uh, I think it's, yeah, you're right. The first essay is the professional essay. So a lot of those professional kind of like, I call them pivot moments, like pivot moments or series of pivot moments are explored explored in that first essay. But again, like I have read absolutely 10,000 hours of applications and it would be not correct to say that everybody's true professional story can be gotten across in 500 words. And so a lot of times I do see professional stories in that optional essay, but again, it's up to the student, you know, what component of their life they still need to get across to the ad com. 
Sounds good. Now, we touched very briefly on the TBD. What is an interview like at Wharton? And what were some of those soft skills that you were getting at, you know, and alluding to a minute ago? Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is how I like to talk about the team-based discussion. So I like to get the stress level from high to low. I think I'll get it to medium. So I'll try for medium low. Okay. Um, <laughs> so what the team-based discussion um, looks and feels like, this is important to me. A couple of things on the, on the top, on the macro. As I said in the intro, business is a team sport and not a solo sport. Uh, Wharton is a very team-centric culture and team-centered learning experience. Why would we have a solo inbound? So 10 years ago, so almost, uh, almost 10 years ago, 2012, we did our first team-based discussion based on these principles. Also based on the principles that one-on-one -on -one interviews, whether they're behavioral or another style, can be very biased. You know, what if somebody sat down across from me and we went to the same school or have the same passion in an extracurricular? Uh, I can't turn that off in my brain in terms of bias or no bias, right? And so we like to run a skills-based interview, team-based, obviously, for the other reasons that I mentioned. So that's um, ideologically why we do it. As I mentioned before, every uh, interview notification goes out the same day. When you get invited to interview, in that email, you will get two things. One, you will get your prompt. We're not going to torture you and not give you your prompt until like 20 minutes before the session. You will have your prompt. You will have step-by-step -step instructions, minute by minute of what the team-based discussion will look like. You will also get a series of slots across, across three weeks of which you can sign up to do a team-based discussion. We do not orchestrate the groups, one, because that would be in a logistical nightmare, and two, because of the diversity of our applicant pool, we find that um, the groups are actually naturally very diverse, especially now that they're virtual. Uh, virtual interviews over Zoom will continue through the next 2021-2022 cycle, and we have actually been running team-based discussions via Zoom since 2012. So we were Zoom beta users, and so none of this is new to us. That's very exciting. What it feels like is this. You will get a prompt. You will get a problem to solve in that prompt, something that is very generic. We are not going to ask high finance questions. That's not fair to the fighter pilots. We're not going to ask education questions. That's not fair to uh, the energy uh, space. Investment bankers right? either. <laughs> investment bankers. Not, totally not fair to the investment <laughs> bankers. Something that's um, very general, approachable, and typically Wharton-centric. 35 minutes in a Zoom call, a uh, discussion on how to solve that problem. The way I say it to students, I'm like, it feels like you're in a meeting at work. You're at work and you're trying to solve a problem for 35 minutes with five other strangers. To dovetail to the second part of your question, there are skills of which I'm actually not going to tell them to you. Um, not because they're in the white paper, they are, but not but because that's like the whole point of the team-based discussion. There are behaviors and skills that have been academically researched uh, that if you have them and if you do them, uh, you are better and stronger in teams and in classroom and in your future career. So that's kind of, that's what we're looking for on the macro. Kind of right under that and stuff that I like to talk about is uh, a lot of folks, Linda, think that in any admissions context, business school, undergrad, you know, whatever, you would hit the interview marker and you either do well and get admitted or do poorly and get denied, right? And I'm actually really excited to say that it doesn't work like that at Wharton. I cannot speak for the rest of the business, but it doesn't work like that at Wharton. And this is why there are some students that 
have gotten all A's in computer science, physics, mechanical engineering. That's a certain type of person. That person is not always the room runner. Someone who sees and feels people's energies and knows how to solve a problem and bring quiet people in and advance ideas and build on others' ideas, that's a skill. We're a school. We want to teach you that skill. But we also want the people who have that skill innately coming into the interview process to learn from the people that got A's in physics. And that's why we feel pretty strongly about this, because we're admitting students all the time that do really well in the application process, but maybe not so well in the team-based discussion and vice versa. Great. That was a fantastic answer. Thank you so much. And is there also an individual component to the interview? Yes, there's an individual component, 10 to 15 minute one-on-one after the group interview, where you'll discuss the role you took on, um, if that's typically a role you take, and I'll give an example, uh, in, in your work meetings, anything else about your CV that you want to detail, and then, of course, questions for the interviewer. Here's an example of how this manifests itself. I interviewed someone about five years ago, and he sat back in the team-based discussion and was more kind of just providing commentary on the side kind of steering the group with like a subtle sentence here and there. And I asked him about it and in the in the one-on-one. And he said, well, I own my own company and it's a small company under 10 employees. And we have a staff meeting every Monday and I like them to solve problems. So I'm just used to sitting at the table and kind of slightly redirecting the conversation. Um, and he's like, so that was what I did. And that was, was what I saw. Um, and so it was a really interesting uh, one-on-one post a group interview. Yeah. That is an interesting kind of kind of reaction. It's we we have had mock uh, TBDs um, at accepted, and I found it absolutely fascinating when I sat in on some of them. The way people were personally revealing, frankly, of of <laughs> of their character. Sometimes it's, it's well, sometimes it's something it you can't prep for. You really can't prep for it, and so we tell people in the instructions upon interview, upon invitation to interview, that they can't really prep. You can prepare kind of like your introductory commentary, but after that, it really is innately kind of who you are and how you react to others. And that's something that we've had a lot of success with over the last decade. All right. Great. Now, not limiting yourself to the TBD or or the interview itself, though that certainly is part of it, but what are the most common mistakes that you see applicants make in the application process, either in the the no longer paper, but the, the file or in the interview part portion? Yeah, I always have such a tough time with this question, the mistakes people make. Um, just because when I read applications, I just don't think of things like that. But I think okay. an, a, an answer that I have had solid feedback on giving in the past that has helped people um, is this. A lot of students have asked me the question, hey, I work in a company that doesn't have a standard promotion structure. You know, you come in as an analyst, you get promoted to senior analysts, and you kind of move through the structure. They say, you know, it's a flat organization. I've been there for four years with no promotion. Like, how do I, what do I do? Are you going to think negatively on that? How do I communicate to you that it's a flat organization? And I say, let's flip the question and let's flip the answer. You don't have to communicate to me that it's a flat organization, but you're a different person now than when you walked in the door four years ago. I was like, so your resume needs to reflect that. Okay, fine. You don't have a different title, but you've learned different things. You've become a different person. So I encourage people to write resumes kind of like skills development ladders. It's not a great way to describe it, but it's the best way I've found that, you know, you've come in and you know, A skill and B skill. And then the next year you learned this and you learned this and you took on this. 
And then the third year, you're a different person. And having me follow your professional growth in that way, first of all, is more satisfying than following your title growth. And that can really help your application, right? Because you've grown, even though you haven't grown in title and we love to see it. Great answer. That's a great answer. I think you're just saying this, Linda. I think you're just saying all my answers have been great. Well, you've been saying all my questions are great. So we're, we're even. We should do this okay, a lot. It's good for both our egos. Now let's look, turn to a different aspect of, of admissions, okay? I mean, there are some things in people's lives that they're very concerned about sharing with admissions or perhaps they're concerned that admissions will find out about, right? Um, they're very, and they're also different kinds of items. So one is, let's say somebody had a dip in grades or perhaps a period of unemployment due to an emotional issue, depression, anxiety, whatever it might be. How do you, I mean, should they keep it a secret? Should they hide it from you? Are they going to be, is it going to be held against them if they disclose? No. So, you know, two, two things I think about this question. One, um, and I I've said this often, like we are human beings reading other human beings stories. Right. And so to me, that's part of a lot of people's journeys. And I want you, if that's an authentic part of your journey, it needs to be in the file. Second thing is especially 2021, you know, you just alluded most strongly, I think to mental health in that question, Yes, especially now in 2021. Yeah. Mental health and kind of the struggles uh, of mental health have become so much more in the forefront. I was actually just listening to a podcast that Adam Grant did one of the Wharton faculty, which everybody knows called, I think it was, look for it. It's like, you know, uh, sad days should be allowed, not just sick days. I think the title was sad days should be allowed just as much as sick days. Right. So I just, especially in 2021, I think it's much more in the forefront of the culture. So I would say, please talk about it. If it had affected kind of your employment or your grades or something like that, we are humans trying to understand other human being stories. Okay. Great. Related and, and in some respects, entirely different. What about people who had academic infractions as an undergrad or perhaps a misdemeanor on their their record. They have a a criminal record. Yeah. Um, I would just say there's a question on the application. Have you had an academic infraction or misdemeanor? And you need to answer that truthfully. Um, And I say that because we're going through a situation right now where somebody did not mention that truthfully. And that's, you sign on your application that everything is true and accurate to the best of your information. And so just kind of on a broad base, it needs to be truthful. In terms of an an evaluative base, you know, it really depends, to be honest. What we have seen, though, and again, human beings reading other people's files or trying to understand other human being stories, is that say you had a disciplinary infraction, because this honestly happens all the time. You had a disciplinary infraction, plagiarism when you were a sophomore. You're now 29 years old. Like, you were not the same person that plagiarized that one paper in, like, sophomore year English, right? So in that case, like, it's not going to be a big deal, right? But if it was something more serious in terms of, like, a pretty serious crime committed last year, we may look at it a little bit more closely. It just depends on what it is. But I would say the vast majority of things we see come through are very benign. And it's, again, even if they're not benign, they're so far away from your current reality that we don't give them a ton of weight. Right. Just to add to you, that's a fantastic answer. Thank you. Just to add to your point about the um, need to be truthful in those situations, I'll never forget the time we had a client who got into one of your uh, competitor schools, main nameless, but definitely a top MBA program. Very happy. We congratulated him. Everything was good. And then a few months later, the guy buys our services again. And I said to the consultant, what happened? I thought he got admitted. He left off something. 
I think in his case, it was really benign. It was like a period of unemployment. Yeah, it was, no, it happens. You know, and it, it wasn't, you know, and the school withdrew their offer of acceptance. Yeah, we will. We will. So, um, folks, be truthful. <laughs> okay. What advice do you have for applicants wanting to join the class of 2024? In other words, those applying this cycle, by the time the show airs, it'll be round two applicants. Yep. I would say engage with the resources that the Wharton Admissions Committee is putting out. Um, We feel like, you know, one of the ideologies I had when taking this role three years ago was how do I be as transparent as possible and how do I democratize the information? So, you know, if you're not checking out our our website, which, you know, why would you every week or every month? Uh, We've actually been pumping out a ton of content, application tips, webinars. I did a application tips webinar on YouTube that's gotten over 25,000 views. And I've just gotten feedback that it's been really helpful to people. We also started a new program called Ask the Adcom. And we've been doing these bi-weekly where we just crowdsource questions and try to answer them as quickly as possible. So just say like engage with the stuff that we have going on and just know that the folks that are trying to give you this information are not hiding anything. We're just trying to be as transparent as possible to democratize the information. I know a lot of people normally answer that question with, kind of sit with your authentic feelings and really figure out why you want to come to business school. And that's a tough thing for someone in my seat to say, because it's so personal. A lot of folks don't need to sit with their authentic feelings. They know exactly why they want to come to business school. And maybe some other people listening will really need to do that. I will say that you'll have a better success record in business school, no matter where you go. If you come in with really focused and dedicated reasons for being there, I've actually heard people saying like putting it on a little card three things just to have them be your true north. So I think exploring those and prep is never a bad thing, but we're trying to help you craft the best application you can. So take us up on it. Okay. Sounds good. I would, yeah, visit the Wharton site. What advice would you give to somebody planning ahead, let's say to a fall 2022 or later application? I would say the same. Okay. I can say the same. Engage, engage with the Wharton site. Mm-hmm. Engage with our content. We are not trying, we're not going to be changing anything. We're not going to be changing deadlines or rounds or essays. The world is already chaotic enough. So the Wharton Admissions Committee is committed to at least the next 18 months of not going crazy. So a lot of the things you see online in terms of prepping for applications in this, in this current cycle will remain um, the same going forward. And so that would be my same advice, whether you're prepping for round two, spring 2021, fall 21 or spring 23. All right. Now, what about a slightly different category of applicants, specifically the ones applying to the Deferred Admit program at one? It's the MOELIS, right? Yeah, the MOELIS program. Uh, my, My first goal with the folks that are applying to our Deferred Admissions program is to get this information in the hands of as many students as possible. So our team, and I know this is probably common, but we talk about this all the time internally. We're like, okay, it would be easy to go get this information out to the top 25 schools in the country. But that's actually not what we're doing. We're trying to make sure that folks around the country at a variety of state schools, private schools, small schools, big schools, urban schools, rural schools, everybody knows that this exists because I think this is a really interesting moment in time. If you are 19 and 20, many times if you're not at kind of like the flagship Ivy League school on the East Coast, you're not going to be thinking about an MBA. And we want folks all over the country to be thinking that an MBA, and especially an MBA at a top school, can be a place for them. So we have spent a ton of time, effort, and talent trying to make sure that that information is democratized. 
Um, in terms of prepping them, again, just knowing that it exists, I feel like is prep for is is my victory in prep. The documents, webinars, resources on our website will be the same for them as it is for the full time. I would encourage them to check it out and uh, connect with our staff. We do a lot more one-on-one conversations for those folks than we typically have time for for the full time. So reach out to our staff, and we'll be happy to have a one-on-one conversation with them. Has Warden started matriculating any any people admitted through the the Deferred Admit program? Yes. So I believe 2016 was our first admission intake, and last year was the first year we started matriculating. And the matrics are going to go up exponentially, right? It's like two, six, twelve, fifty, right? So that's what we're going to be doing. (laughs) And yeah, so we have our uh, second class, I believe, of MOLAS fellows entering in the class of 2000, who just entered in the class of 2023, and we'll have exponentially more in the class of 24. They're some of the most talented students we welcome every year. They're amazing. Great. Okay. Anything you would have liked me to ask you? Yeah, it's a good question, too. The only last thing that I like to bring up, and I kind of touched on it around the edges, is you know, we talk about democratizing the information. We talk about being transparent with the information. We talk about making sure the reach for the MOLIS Deferred Access Program goes as far and wide as humanly possible. But the main most important thing we talk about, and I don't have it on like little gold plaques on all of our offices, but I probably should, is this philosophy, and I know you've heard me say this before, that's called read to admit, which means every application we open on the computer, we are looking for reasons to admit you and not for reasons to deny you. And I think Folks don't probably think that's a big deal on the other side of the desk, but it's a huge deal. Your application is going to be read with people that are looking for your best day and not your worst day with positive headspace and not a negative headspace. So don't self-select out. If you're thinking that business school at Wharton could be a place for you, just know that the people that are reading your story are on your side. Um, And I just like to say that as many times as I can. That's a great note on which to end. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining me today, Blair. Where can listeners and potential applicants learn more about Wharton's MBA program and admissions process? Absolutely. A couple of resources that I want to call your attention to. I mentioned the application tips webinar, the Ask the Adcom webinars we have on our website, as well as all of the information sessions you would expect. But one specific program I would love to call anybody listening's attention to, and that's our admissions fellows program. There are a ton of questions that people have that full-time admissions committee members are not best suited to answer. What is it like moving from a partner from the West Coast to Philadelphia? How is it to recruit for consulting out of tech? What is it like to try to network into your next job through alumni? Students are better to answer those questions. We have 55 second-year students on our payroll. Please use them because I pay them to answer your questions admissions fellows right on the admissions website. You can search and filter their backgrounds by passport and company and internship and leadership and club. And you can connect with the person you want to connect with. They have personal email addresses and links to calendars in which you can auto schedule appointments, which I know you love, Linda, because we use the same software. Um, (laughs) And so please check them out because again, they're on my payroll and uh, they can give some great intel. Wonderful. Great advice. All right. Thank you so much. So we're going to include links in the show notes at sip.com slash 440 to the Wharton admissions site, to that webinar that uh, that Blair was talking about, and also to the admissions fellows. And it's all going to be linked to at sip.com slash 440. Quick reminder, don't miss the MBA admissions quiz. Find out if you're really ready to apply and competitive at your target schools. Take the quiz at accepted.com slash MBA quiz. Listener, thank you, too, for joining Wharton Admissions Director Blair Mannix and me for our 440th episode. If you find the show worthwhile, please subscribe. 
Make sure you don't miss any future shows, be they with admissions directors, professors, current students, test prep pros, or alumni doing great things. Thanks again for coming. This is Admissions Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I'm your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. Bye.